Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That hymn was an amazing introduction to this passage. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. This is found on page 966 if you want to use uh, the Bible that's in the pew. As I said to my Sunday school class, I've uh, had a terrible cough this week and now I'm on steroids. I might do anything. <laughs> and then I want the men afterwards to line up and I'll arm wrestle every one of you. So, <laughs> so my voice is uh, rather weak today, so I apologize for that. <clears throat> so verse 11, we are uh, skipping around a bit, as you can see, lining up for Easter beginning chapter 4, verse 16 through 5.10, which particularly applies to our future resurrection. So we kind of marshaled our passages so that Easter we would be preaching on resurrection. And so this is a jump in that it really should follow, but I'll refer back to verse 10, so I'm going to read it. Uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the therefore, right? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to this passage that unveils so much of the riches of your glory, the riches of your salvation, Open, up, uh, open our eyes, Lord. Open our hearts to receive these beautiful things. 
for them to affect us deeply and to continue, Lord, its great work in our lives to transform us into the image of Jesus. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. There's a series called The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. I've read the first six books many years ago, and I've recently found out, I haven't kept up with them, that four more are added. So there are ten, apparently, altogether. But in this book, Thomas Covenant is a leper in this world. He is, has been abandoned by his wife because of his leprosy. He continues to wear the ring, his wedding ring, a ring of white gold. But it's now a symbol of loss and abandonment, really a symbol of his helplessness. He speaks about the constant, the VSE, which is visual surveillance of extremities. How he constantly has to look at his fingers, his toes, every extremity because he can't feel anything. A leper loses their feeling. And if he's not careful, he'll burn a finger off or cut something else off. So he's helpless in this regard. His whole house is built to protect him against his leprosy. He's walking through the woods. He comes upon a girl being confronted by a snake. And he, in trying to rescue her, falls. And he passes out and he wakes up in a whole new world. Kind of like Narnia kids where they go through the wardrobe and they end up in Narnia from this world. He ends up in another world. In this world, he has no leprosy. And in this world, that ring that was the symbol of abandonment, loss, and helplessness actually is the great power of that world that must be wielded against the dark lord of that world. And in my series that I read, there were six books leading to uh, uh, the the confrontation. And one of the great difficulties for him was to believe that he was really this new person. To believe that he really had the white gold. Because everything in him cried out, You're helpless, you're worthless, you've been abandoned. This is the symbol of your utter loss. It cannot be the great power that you now have. I think that's a great image for what this passage talks about. Of our being brought from the old world into a new world. From our being brought from a world in which we had the leprosy of guilt and condemnation and the dominion of sin into a new world where we actually wheel the white goal of the gospel and bring it to the nations. The power of God for salvation. (laughs) The great power that transforms the world. And we lepers are lepers no longer. We wield the power of the gospel the power of the gospel is actually working in our lives. That's what this passage is about. You see in your bulletin the outline, our motives, the, the, the overall title, this ministry of the cross. This ministry of the cross is first Paul's ministry, 
But then it becomes the church's ministry as well. This is the umbrella over our lives, really. The ministry of the cross. This ties in with our overall theme. The cross speaks into our crisis. The cross uh, shapes our crisis. It informs our crisis. It informs our daily circumstance. It informs and shapes everything we do. And so really, the whole of our lives is the working out of this cross in the way we live, the way we speak, uh, the way we deal with unbelievers, the way we love each other. So I've broken it down in this passage into these uh, three points. Our motives in this ministry, our motives before God, our mindset uh, toward humanity, and then our message of Christ. Now, spend a little bit more time on A, the fear of the Lord, because I think we have some difficulty with this concept. You probably don't find it a comfort when you read in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive according to what each of us has done, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. Probably not the most comforting words when you first read them. So I want to spend a little more time on that part so it's a little unbalanced so don't think wait a minute he's only touched on fear we will never get out of here it'll go faster than you think so when he speaks of knowing the fear of the lord here this is not the dread of judgment in which a person has no assurance like is facing judgment with kind of a stark raving fear that I know I'm probably am going to hell, okay? Knowing this fear, knowing this dread that I may go to hell, we're out there. Many passages, in fact, urge us to draw near to God's holy presence with confidence, assurance, and even boldness because we trust in the forgiveness and, and uh, acceptance that we have in Christ. We don't have time to look at them all. But 1 John 4 actually says that God so grows us in his love so that love is more and more perfected in us so that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. So the more we understand his love, the more we understand, have confidence in the day of judgment because he says perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. This is where the Bible wants you and me to live. This is where God wants us to live. No fear of punishment, even as we consider judgment. Okay? So, let's don't lose ourselves in this language of fear. In fact, in Psalm 130, verse 4, we have a hymn based on this that we sing a lot. Fear is rooted in the forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That fear must be something different, right, than dread. There's the relief and joy and wonder of forgiveness so that now we can be in awe of this great God who would forgive us, you see. To be astonished and amazed at you, to count you as and to honor you, to give you reverence and respect. And praise for all that you have done for us. 
You might remember a line in John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. It reads like this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." See, grace brought me into this relationship of awe and honor and love and adoration of God. Then the next line, and grace my fears relieved. So grace relieved my fears of not being accepted by God. It relieved my fears of being punished by God. But grace also taught my heart To fear in the right way. To honor and adore and be in awe of this God. And respect his authority. And love his authority. And love his holiness. So fear teaches, uh, grace teaches me to fear. And it relieves me of my fears. That's the kind of fear that Paul is talking about. And you see, it has to be consistent with verse 14. The love of Christ controls me. I'm sorry. You take this off if I cough. Yeah, I'll warn you, and you can turn it down. Sorry, that would be great. Always. Yeah, he coughed 800 times during the message. See, these cannot be opposed to each other. Get this, we are controlled by the love of the Christ before whom we will stand in judgment, okay? We are amazed at the love of the one who will judge us. We believe our future judge has loved us and died for us. We believe our future judge has freely given himself away for our sake. So these are not in opposition to each other. And his love for us has brought us to begin to admire his holiness. His holiness is not an ugly thing to us. It's a beautiful thing, especially when you realize that his holiness is simply the purity and perfection of his love. It is the sheer sincerity and passion of his love. It's the energy and intensity and depth of his love. It's the sheer goodness and faithfulness and generosity of his love. We admire him as a holy judge because he's such a good judge, such a fair judge, such a righteous judge. In Isaiah 6, after God is... Declared by the angels, the seraphim, to be holy, holy, holy. And that's all they cry. What happens to Isaiah in his presence? Yes, he realizes I'm a sinful man in the presence of this God. But what does this holy God do? This holy God forgives his sins. Okay? In his holiness, in his sheer goodness, he forgives the sin of Isaiah. And he embraces him. And in God's holiness, he makes his people holy so that we leave our living for ourselves to spend ourselves lavishly, to be holy as God is holy and to love others as he loves. And of course, the reality of judgment to hear that each one will receive what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll talk about this a bit next week at Easter, but not as much. 
Um, We have to think about what Jesus said in John 6. People ask him, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Pretty important question, right? You know, you might expect, well, here's a list, a long list of the things you better be doing to do the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. See, that's the primary work, or you might say the primary evidence that we belong to God, that we trust in Jesus. It will be known in that day that we were helpless and we had struggles, but we kept turning to Christ. We kept expecting him to rescue us. You kept believing that he wouldn't turn from you. You kept believing he would do good to you and be merciful to you. You were never perfect, but that's how you lived. You had tears and devastation and Sometimes you were overwhelmed and sometimes you lost your way, but you continued to trust in Christ. You see, it will be found in that day that there was a manifestation of God's grace working in your life. And in Christ, there will be the unfailing mounting evidence of your relationship to Christ and your trust in Christ. And everything flows from that. That's the good deed. (laughs) That's the central work. That's what turns everything around, that we become helplessly dependent upon him. And that's why, again and again, in Hebrews, he urges these people that were being tempted to turn away from God, continue to hope in him. He didn't say in the first place, continue to do good. He said, continue to put your hope in Christ. Continue to trust in him. And so, I want to say, we live every day, let's not say it in the shadow of judgment, but in the light of judgment, in the beauty of judgment. Realize it will be an in Christ judgment. Nothing will separate us, isn't abandoned on the day of judgment. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. When we are his. We are with Christ and in Christ. Even in the day of judgment. We are judged as his accepted children in Christ. It is because of his love for us. That we all the more now. Want to be pleasing to him. In that day. You see. We're in awe of his goodness. We want to honor that goodness. We want to respect that goodness. It's because you know and taste his love. Do you have any true desire To want to be pleasing to him in that day. Otherwise, there's only fear. There's only dread. Or there's only neglect. Push it out of your mind. Don't let it bother you. It's those that taste his love. That can look with confidence. Now and in that final day. And I would say, of course... This means for all of us to seek sincerity of heart and openness of life and, and motives. Go after your hidden agendas. 
the behind-the-back scenes, the hidden motives, the hidden practices. Ask the Lord to search your heart and see if there be any hurtful way in you. Confess your weakness. Confess your shows. Confess your sham. Confess your lack of trust in His goodness. Continue to open yourself up to God's grace and to others. That utter and rich and sweet sincerity is one of the things that continues to promote our acceptance of his love. Well, in verses 11 and following, as he goes on from 11 through 13, Paul talks about this, that what we are is known before God. Uh, We're not putting ourselves before you or not putting our credentials before you. We're putting our real selves as he's been doing with all of our suffering and all of our weakness. And we're doing this so that those people who are telling you, hey, all their suffering and loss and rejection, their lack of pizzazz and polish, they can't be from God. You can speak to the critical issue of the heart. That these men in their very suffering are manifesting Christ. And they're very suffering in their weakness and their trust in Christ. They're manifesting the gospel. You see, they're looking to outward appearance. We're telling you, we're helping you get the connection between suffering and Christ so that you can stand with us and believe in the truth and not in appearances. And he says, if we seem beside ourselves, if we seem uh, insane in our passion, in our reckless abandonment to suffering or maybe our passion for Christ, know this, that it's, we do this because of God. We do this for Him. And if other circumstances we seem like we're clothed and in our right mind and, and we're ministering the gospel, we do this for you. In other words, whatever you see in us, <clears throat> whether extreme or not extreme, it's for God. It's for you. He had said earlier that we're not preaching ourselves, but we're preaching Christ and ourselves as your servants. And basically, he's saying the same thing here. God knows this about us. We're before him in his sight. And we want you to see reality. We see things from from the standpoint of the heart. And so he comes to this great statement in verses 14 and 15. And by the way, I have a paper on the back. It's just to a page front and back that deals with the question of who is the all that's being talked about in verses 14 and 15. But we don't have time to really consider that. I'm just assuming that when I talk about this, okay? But if you want to study it further, you can uh, pick up one of those sheets. It's on the long table back there, I believe. Um, But here, why does the love of Christ control us? See, the love of Christ controls us because, right, because we realize he died for us. And later in verse 15, he says, and he was raised for us. And because he died for us, we died in him. We were bound up in his death. We were united to his death. So what happened because we were united to him When that death was applied to us in the gospel, when it was announced to us in the gospel that Christ had died for us and God brought it home to our hearts, and we saw the glory of this Christ, a revolution occurred in our lives. 
the center of our universe shifted from self to Christ. When we saw the glory of what Christ has done. His love set us free from self to be fixed upon him. We are controlled by the love of Christ because we've seen that he died for us and was raised for us. And we died in him so that we might live for him and not for ourselves. There is this great purpose in his death. There is this goal that his people, as he says in verse 15, would be freed from living for themselves but instead would live for the one who for them died and was raised. We live for him, governed by his love for us, the love that we see in his dying for us and being raised for us. And so this is the good news of the great power of the gospel for us. It breaks into your life. It floods you with an overpowering, Powering, passionate love of God in Christ that begins to its work of freeing you from self-protection, from self-pity, from self-attention, from self-exaltation and self-promotion. It begins to free us from our clawing, grabbing, stealing, manipulating, isolating, self-justifying, self-excusing, other-accusing, other-rejecting, other-neglecting self. (laughs) This is another way that Paul says we've been freed from bondage to sin. That sin was what? It was me. My devotion to me over anyone else. That's where the gospel comes. And now this love is being is beginning to set us free so that now we live for the one who lives for others, who lived for others, who continues to live for others. We begin to fall in with him. We find his joy of sacrificing our lives for others. We begin to be like this one who has loved us. Who is other centered. And not self-centered. <laughs> Mark Seyfried, a commentator on Second Corinthians, makes a very interesting point here. He says, this passage that speaks of the rescue that is brought about in our hearts through the death of Christ is not what Zinzendorf wrote, a mystic, German mystic, years ago. <clears throat> Here's how he put it. All, you may have heard something like this. All this I did for you. What have you done for me? You ever heard stuff like that? How about Francis Havergal's hymn? I gave my life. Which I sang this for years. I gave my life for thee. My precious blood I shed. That thou mightst ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave. I gave my life for thee. What hast thou? Given for me. How's that make you feel? See, I've done all this for you. What are you now going to do for me? And Seafried makes the wonderful point no, this commitment is not a demand. This commitment to Him is not a demand in the first place, it's a gift. This release from self 
is the gift that Christ brings to you through his death and resurrection. It is salvation to be set free from self so that you will give yourself up to Christ and love him. It's not that Christ does all this and then sits there with his hands crossed. Okay, now, what are you going to do for me? It's the love of Christ. And that's coupled with this great, wonderful fear and awe of Christ as well. Both of them are found together. Both of them are healthy and rich to have these rich motives of awe and love. And this brings a whole different mindset toward humanity. These new motives, this new salvation. In this, we have a whole new mindset. When this love of Christ controls us and we die to living for ourselves, we don't view people by outward, self-seeking, self-serving standards. We don't judge them for their value to us. Their ability to make us feel important, their impressiveness that we feed off of, or their weakness and failure that we disdain because they're not worthy of us. We don't rate people according to their social and economic scale or their personality scale or how much influence they have or how they can advance us or make us feel good about ourselves if we know them. We don't judge them after the flesh. Why? Because we have been set free from living for ourselves so that now we live for Christ who dies for all kinds of people, every kind of person. And we begin to be like him, not viewing people by the flesh, but by the spirit understood here. And Paul says, this is how we viewed Christ. Speaking we, this is Paul's we, Paul himself particularly. He viewed Christ from a worldly standard of Judaism that looked for a powerful political leader, leader to deliver Israel from political oppression and give it rule over the whole world with all the resources flowing toward Jerusalem. And he viewed Jesus as this worthless blasphemer and liar who was cursed by God on a cross and when he was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus he realized that it was for him that he died. He was cursed for Paul in Paul's place in the place of a a multitude that no one could number And he realized that in his bloody suffering, the very God of Israel had come to die. (laughs) And it totally revolutionized his life. And here he is living it out in his own suffering, his own loss of life for the sake of others knowing this Christ. What a change from one who was persecuting this Christ. See, therefore, verse 16, therefore, because of what happens in verses 14 and 15, the same thing in verse 17, therefore, since he died for us and we no longer live for ourselves but for him, therefore, this is a new creation. And it shows that he had all the time been talking about union, this being joined with him in which we died in him and we are raised to a new life of living for him. 
Therefore, this union, this being in Christ, is nothing less than a new creation. It's a new world. It's Thomas' covenant going from this world to that world. From having a ring uh, uh, that stood for abandonment and loss uh, and and having leprosy. And now the leprosy is gone. The dominion of sin is over. And now we are walking in the gospel, in the good news. This is a new creation. Isn't it interesting that he caused a new creation, this coming, this, this being set free from self to love Christ centrally. This old is gone, this living for ourselves and viewing people from a fleshly perspective. The new has come where we live for Christ and we live for others and we view them in the light of the gospel. A new life of outward focus is here. We, and, and it's not just us, but it's the whole world, the whole new creation that we're a part of that will one day be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth, which we anticipate. So we participate in this new vision. We participate in new relationships. We participate in the new power, the new life, the new love of the new creation, even now. This is who you are. This is where you are. This is where you're headed. You are new creation. And he ends then with this message of the cross. All of this, Paul says, all of this that I've been talking about is from God. It was God working to bring us to himself in verse 18. God reconciled us to himself. And he describes in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. World means here that class of people. He was working to reconcile people to himself, human beings to himself. This is God at work. This is God's vocation. This is what he's taken up with. This is what he's focused on. The reconciling of people to himself. This is what he's passionate about. This is what he gave himself over to in the person of Christ. He's the great reconciler at the greatest cost to himself. As Paul says in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Here is God and you just stand back. It's a head turner for sure in his compassionate, merciful heart. We who had sinned against him, we who were enemies. And here is God suffering on a bloody cross to reconcile us to himself. What a God. What love. And so you see, begins to flesh out what, when he said earlier that he died for all. You see what results from it, right? In verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against us, against him. You realize that when he died for all, he bore their trespasses. He bore away their sin so that they would, those sins would not be accounted to them. And this is why we give ourselves up to this Christ. We see in this bloody cross God's great work to restore us to himself. We see his passion to have us, the great love. 
one of salvation in which none of our trespasses, none of our trespasses will be counted against us. That's part of this love that we have, that, uh, the love that controls us. Astonished at what God has done. Astonished at who he really is. And of course, this great work must be announced. So he says that he entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. It must go out. It must be announced to everyone. It is available for anyone. To anyone, we say, this great work of God has been accomplished for sinners. It's yours if you'll have it. Come, see this God who's at work to reconcile sinners to himself. Come and be reconciled yourself. And verse 21 enlarges on this message. It shows that when he died for us in verse 14 and 15, it means that he became sin for us. The one who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He was the epitome of sin. He was the one who bore the guilt of sin, who took the responsibility for our sin and suffered for our sin. And that in him, we then can become the righteousness of God. We can stand before God, accepted by the very righteousness of God himself. That as well as part of how we feast on his love and are convinced of his love, he's made me acceptable before him. All my trespasses are gone. Jesus has borne away my sin. And now I stand in the righteousness of God before him. And that's why I can be bold. That's why I can have assurance. That's why I can have confidence in the day of judgment. Because by God's grace, I'm now in the righteousness of God. And finally, there's this appeal, which is one of the most stunning passages in all of Scripture, where he says, we are ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you hear God's grace in that? Do you hear God's earnest desire in that? God appealing to you? God saying, here's my ambassador, and through him I say to you, I urge you, be reconciled. Be reconciled. I've done all that is necessary. I've taken it upon myself. I have done all the work. I've sent my son. He has died for anyone who will trust in him. And this is the ministry that we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, bring to the lost and dying world. It's personal. It's relational. God wants to be your friend. He wants you to be restored to him. He wants you to belong to him. He wants to embrace you and love you. He wants to make you acceptable in his sight. We announce what he's accomplished. We announce what he freely offers. And brothers and sisters, at some point in your friendship with unbelievers at some point in your conversations we have to show this same urgency don't we we have to say with some urgency look God himself addresses you God himself 
urges you, be reconciled to him. Don't ignore this God who has accomplished so much so that you could be reconciled to him. Something of that, you see. Something, something, something of God's own urging. And so, in all of God's coming judgment, we persuade people. We urge them with God's own urging to be reconciled. He's acted so that they might be reconciled to him before judgment, right? How important is it? So the fear of God not only governs us, but we have to think about those people. We have to think about their facing that judgment as well. And in all of this, by his grace, we are governed by his love, more and more set free from self. We are new creation. Our old life is gone. Our new life of giving ourselves up to Christ and giving ourselves away to others. That's what's here. That's what's here. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for an amazing rescue at a terrible cost. Thank you, Lord, that you so worked to reconcile us to yourself, that you died for us, that we died in you, that you died so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for you. Thank you, Lord, for the new creation in which we now participate by your grace. Enable us even now at your table to celebrate what you have done and all the more to believe it. Amen.